All right. So this is technically a response to a woman named Lydia uh, in a thread about um, prayer to the saints and whether or not that prayer is in fact uh, worshiping uh, the saints, uh, whether it's contrary to the gospel or not. Uh, this is in a, a uh, particular Facebook group called Reaching Catholics and Others Through the Gospel 2. I'm assuming there's a, a first page as well. Uh, the, the text of this page, uh, a lot of the stuff, there's a lot of Catholics on here actually, but there do seem to be a lot of people who uh, have kind of an ax to grind against the Catholic Church. And so uh, I wanted to shoot a video uh, in particular for Lydia, and I want to address the question about whether or not it is actually unbiblical uh, to, as she says, uh, ask the dead to pray for you uh, or to ask the saints to pray for you. And I've got a lot of different scriptural passages and verses up here just to kind of put some of this in in context. So I'm going to start, I'm going to make this bigger, uh, maybe make myself smaller here. Um, but I want to take her um, question here at, at face value. I don't know what this dear Sue is. I think she was trying to copy something and it didn't quite copy over correctly. Um, looks like maybe she was trying to copy a, a Hebrew word or something. Um, and I actually pulled that up earlier because I think I know the word she was looking at, but um, I'm not going to worry about it right now because in general, this will all make sense uh, as is. So she says this, um, there is a big difference between asking someone on earth to pray for you, alive, biblical, uh, to somebody dead, unbiblical, to pray for you. So basically she's saying there's a big difference between asking someone that's alive on earth to pray for you versus asking somebody who has died to pray for you. Um, any form of communication with the dead is called necromancy and God forbids it in Isaiah uh, 8, 19. Um, and then I think she's quoting Isaiah here. When men tell you to consult the spirits of the dead and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, shouldn't the people consult their God instead? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Uh, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And then she says here, the Hebrew word for consult here is dirsu, which actually looks like a weird renditioning of, of the actual Hebrew word um, that's being used. I don't know if I still have it pulled up or not. Um, hang on. All right, so this passage here in Isaiah, um, the word, uh, the root of the word is darash. Now, I am not uh, Hebrew literate. I can do Greek, um, but Hebrew, I've tried. It just does not stick. Um, but here's roughly, you know, what the, the wording says, you know, when they say to you, you know, consulting other mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, uh, shouldn't these people consult God? Uh, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And so the root word that she's quoting here is darash. Um, I don't know the exact wording of it here. And so I'm wondering if the, the way that the Hebrew is transformed looks more like dirsu. I don't think that's right. Um, based on my limited knowledge of Hebrew, again, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I, I, I get the sense that maybe what she's trying to do here. Um, so, and then she makes the claim that the word, uh, so let's go back here really quickly. Um, the word dirsu can mean to tread, to frequent, to follow, to seek, to ask, to worship. Uh, God is a jealous God. So the, the thing is, sometimes a word can have a lot of meanings. And sometimes when you're giving an injunction or prescription uh, against something, you're not necessarily meaning all of the different meanings of that word. And so you have to be able to understand within context what exactly it means. Um, I think that we would actually find a lot of common ground here. Um, as Catholics, we firmly believe that you shouldn't be consulting the dead. Uh, and in fact, prayer to the saints, properly understood, as we'll see in a few minutes here, is not consulting the dead. Uh, to 
to consult literally is to want a response, right? And we have a very biblical version of this. So here's here's Deuteronomy. Um, this is actually what uh, Isaiah is drawing on. You know, let no one be found among you sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or spells, or a medium or a spiritualist who consults the dead. So the idea of consulting here is not simply making a petition or a request. The idea of consultation is literally seeking an answer in response. And we can actually see an example of this in 1 Samuel 28. Um, here we see uh, the now crumbling King Saul um, surrounded by his enemies. And uh, he seeks out uh, a, a woman, the, the witch of Endor, uh, as she's often called, in order to summon up Saul. Or sorry, Saul seeks out the witch of Endor in order to summon up Samuel um, because he needs help. And he says, uh, Saul then said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said, behold, there is a medium at Endor. He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out in a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Um, as interesting line here, he says, I see a God coming over the earth. The earth, he said, what is his appearance? I don't think this is, this means God in the normal sense. Uh, he's an old man coming up. He's wrapped in robe. Saul knew at once it was Samuel. Uh, he bowed with his face to the ground and he did obeisance, right? He, he's literally, he knows that he's actually speaking to the real Samuel. And we know that he's speaking to the real Samuel too, because then Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up here? Uh, and Saul answers, I'm in great distress. Uh, and then Samuel says, why did you do for me? Why did you ask me since the Lord has turned for me to become an enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek uh, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you moreover the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and all your sons will be with me the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines then Saul fell at once on the ground filled with fear at the words of Samuel and there was no strength in him uh, for he had nothing he had not eaten all day and all night um and so on and so forth and so literally you know samuel's response here is why are you disturbing me you know why are you bringing me up this is a consultation with the dead this is what is prohibited what's really interesting is it seems to work and that's something that we should definitely uh bear in mind right it does seem to be the case that samuel is able to be made aware through cult or occult practices uh, of what is going on. So in fact, Samuel, uh, far beyond this living world, nevertheless is aware. Um, we see this in other places too. And in fact, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah makes a similar statement. Uh, he says, uh, in the words of the Lord, the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards his people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. So here we actually see in the afterlife, both Moses and Samuel petitioning um, or, or, or being before the Lord uh, in order to petition for the sake of the people of Israel. And yet God is saying, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to punish Jerusalem. It, it needs to happen, right? Um, so clearly, clearly the concept of them being aware of what is going on in the afterlife, some level of cognizance is, is absolutely, uh, biblically sound, right? Um, let me jump through here. There's a couple other things here. Let me actually let me go back to her thing first. Um, so when men tell you not to do these things, God is a jealous God. Absolutely, right? We're not supposed to worship anybody. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking other people who are living uh, to pray for us, right? Um, absolutely, we should ask the living to pray for us. And that's the model I'm going to come back to in just a minute, right? Um, 
So this is one of my favorite responses Jesus ever gives. He's talking to the Sadducees, and the Sadducees, as a reminder of the people, uh, they're a very, very influential sect in the day, but they denied the resurrection entirely. They thought that this life is all that we had. Um, you can remember who they are with this uh, simple mnemonic device. The Sadducees de denied the resurrection, and that's Sadducee. Get it? <laughs> um, anyway, so the Sadducees come to him. And they say that there's no resurrection and they ask him a question. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no child, then the man, the brother, uh, must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. Uh, now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife. And when he died, he left no children. The second took her and died, leaving no children. The third likewise and seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Whose lot, whose wife shall she be for the seven? had her as a wife. Now there is so much that's actually going on in this passage um, that is easy to miss on a superficial reading. Um, first off, the Sadducees, uh, not only did they deny the resurrection, but they denied almost the entire Old Testament. Uh, they accepted the Torah, the, the books of Moses, right? Um, and that was it, the Pentateuch, the, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what they are actually doing is they're quoting a book that they didn't accept in their Bible at Jesus. And if you're a Protestant, you might totally miss this because it's not in your Bible either. And this is the book of Tobit. Literally, the beginning of the book of Tobit begins with um, the, the story of a, of a woman who marries seven brothers and each one dies, not leaving her with any, with any children. So they're literally in this scenario. So what the Sadducees are actually doing in this passage is they're coming to Jesus and they're asking him a question and they're trying to poke two different holes in him. First off, they're saying this resurrection thing makes no sense. And I think this is a legitimate question, right? Uh, they're saying this resurrection thing makes no sense because if a scenario like what happens in this book of Tobit were to actually happen, uh, then it would lead to these really weird scenarios where this woman would have like five or seven husbands in, in heaven. Right. That doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, all the husbands die and then she marries somebody and then, you know, she dies and he marries another wife. You know, they're going to be in this really weird polyamorous relationship in heaven. That's a legitimate question. I mean, after the fact with with all kinds of, you know, 2000 years of hindsight, maybe it seems like a basic sort of a question. Um, but if you read this, not knowing how Jesus is going to answer, uh, it's baffling. Like if, if you don't read the next part of this and you just try and wonder what the actual answer is going to be, that's going to leave you scratching your head. Right. So what they are doing is they're saying, well, listen, you accept this silly story that we don't accept as scripture. Right. Um, we only accept the book of Moses, the books of Moses. Um, so we're going to show you not only that the resurrection doesn't make sense, but we're going to do it using one of these books that you seem to accept. It's one of the books that's in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's the same versions that get quoted all the time. Uh, so when you see Isaiah uh, saying, you know, a virgin shall shall bear a son, uh, the original Hebrew doesn't say virgin, just says a young woman. Um, it's implied maybe, but it's definitely not explicit. But uh, when, when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he says that, that a virgin, Parthenos, uh, will bear a son, which is miraculous and, and utterly a sign of contradiction, um, which is what blows people away, right? So, so Jesus, using the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the of the scriptures, would have included in his scriptures um, 
a story from Tobit. So then Jesus gives them or the, the story of Tobit, which includes the story of the woman and, and the, the seven husbands. Um, Jesus then answers them and he does it amazingly. First off, he just shoots them down and says, you don't understand what heaven's going to be like. Um, and then he gives them an answer. And what's really fascinating is um, there are other passages in the Old Testament that definitely do speak of an afterlife. Um, but he answers them from the Torah, which doesn't give a very clear answer the book of Moses, uh, one of the books of Moses, uh, but he answers from a book that they would have accepted, right? So he says to them, um, is not this why you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor they given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. So he literally answers them and he answers them with a, a text they would have expected or they would have accepted. And his answer is the direct implication that Moses is not dead. Abraham is not dead. Uh, Isaac is not dead. Jacob is not dead because God is not a God of contradiction and he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. So those who have died in this life are still alive in a real way. And what's fascinating is we actually see this all over the place. Uh, I got to figure out which one of these uh, I have. So first off, I'm actually going to jump over here uh, to a parable that Jesus gives us. Uh, this is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. This is a very unique parable for a whole bunch of reasons as well. In part because it's the only parable, assuming it's a parable, we always call it a parable. Maybe it's not um, that features somebody who's named, right? Every other parable that Jesus tells is a parable uh, just about a man or a man had two sons or a man bought a field or whatever it happens to be. But this one uh, is there was a rich man who was sumptuously closed and there was a poor man named Lazarus. And you know the story. The rich man dies. He winds up in Hades, which is the bad part of of the of shale of the boat of the dead. So the boat of the dead is split into two places, right? You have the the place for the good people and the place for the bad people. You Abraham's bosom on the one hand, and Hades, uh, barring the Greek term, for the the unrighteous, right? And there's this abyss between the two of them, and. Um, the rich man calls out to Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip uh, the tip of his finger in cool water that will I'll cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham says, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Uh, Lazarus and likewise received evil things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, there is between us uh, a great chasm that has been fixed in order that uh, those who would pass from here to you may not be able to and none may cross uh, from there to us. Uh, and then he says... Uh, so, so here we see the, both the rich man uh, and Abraham being conscious in some real capacity. Uh, but then he says, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, uh, lest they also come into this place of torment. So here we see uh, this man who has passed on in this life, in this parable that Jesus is giving us, a, a very unique parable involving actually named people, uh, like Lazarus, who incidentally was his friend who actually did die and come back from the dead. Uh, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he says, no, 
Father Abraham, if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, uh, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And of course, Lazarus rises from the dead. And of course, Jesus, of course, is the resurrection uh, and also rises from the dead. There's Again, there's so many levels of, of depth and, and complexity going on in, in what we see here. But one of the basic answers uh, that we're being given uh, is, is, is clearly in the, in the purpose of this parable that the dead are aware uh, in some capacity and may even seek to intervene. Now, in this particular instance, uh, the man is being shut down, but that doesn't mean that's always the case. Uh, clearly, the possibility exists because we're literally seeing it happen uh, inside of this parable. But what about things that aren't parables? Well, in the book of Revelation, uh, this is chapter, I'm going to jump actually over here to chapter six first. Um, we see the opening of all these these seals and we see death and famine and everything else uh going across the uh the world it says this when we open when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the witness that they had borne and they cried out with a loud voice "O sovereign lord holy and true how long will thou judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth uh, and then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and the brethren would be complete, uh, who would be killed as they themselves had been. So literally, they are awake before the end of times. Uh, they are aware of what is going on uh, in the world around them. Uh, and they're calling out for righteousness. They're calling out for, for justice to be visited upon the world. Um, and so here we see the dead alive and able to be aware of what's going on. Now we actually see a couple other things in Revelation. Um, we see these these priests, these elders, these 24 elders uh, in heaven. And these 24 elders, they fall down before the lamb and they each hold a harp and they each have a golden bowl full of incense. And that incense is the prayers of the saints. So we see the elders in heaven presenting the prayers of the saints, which in, in the scriptures, almost always the word saints, hagios, is those on earth, the, the holy ones who are striving, right? Right. Uh, so literally, we have these 24 elders. Uh, the word there is presbyteroi, which is literally just where we get the English word for priest from. It's just a contraction of presbyteroi. Uh, the, these presbyters, whatever you want to call them, uh, they're up in heaven and they've got these golden bowls of incense that they're offering to God. And now those incense, the things that they are offering to God are the prayers of the saints. Well, they had to get those prayers in some capacity. Uh, incidentally, just a few chapters later in Revelation 8, we actually see the angels doing the same thing. Another angel came and stood on the altar with a golden censer and he he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar and before the throne. The smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hands of the angel before God. Uh, and then he took the, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, etc. Et but here again, we see the, the smoke, uh, the incense that's rising is uh, the incense. It is the prayers of the holy ones. It is the prayers of the saints that are on earth. Uh, and of course, this has Old Testament roots, right? Going all the way back to the psalmist who says, praise the Lord, uh, all you, his angels, all you, his heavenly hosts, right? Everybody praise the Lord. Oh, shoot. There we go. Sorry, I never, I, I, I logged in and I pulled up all these things before I logged in. Anyway, I had to refresh it. And uh, so it's very, very clear um, I just lost my recording window. That's okay. Um, I'll be able to turn off in a minute. <laughs> anyway, it's very, very clear, uh, that there's actually old Testament precedent for this again, going all the way back to, um, you know, Jeremiah talking about, uh, Moses and Samuel standing before the Lord, uh, going back to the Psalmist invoking the, all of the heavenly hosts and all of the angels. So it's the angels and it's the heavenly hosts, right? Uh, to, to praise God with him. And then, of course, we have the book of Hebrews. 
And Hebrews tw- uh, 11 is, is the, the great Hall of Fame passage. Lots of great stuff in here about what faith actually means and how faith implies uh, obedience. And it's not just a mere mental ascent, right? Uh, Abraham obeys in faith, obeys in faith. And you compare that with John three thirty six, 36, uh, where we see uh, faith being contrasted with, uh, with disobedience, not with disbelief. Um, so all of these people in faith and faith and faith and faith and faith, we have the, all of the great heroes of the old Testament. Um, incidentally, um, where is it right here? Um, some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Uh, every other passage in Hebrews 11 refers to uh, a character from the Old Testament that's in both Catholic and Protestant uh, Bibles, but you'll never find somebody tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again for better life. That actually is a story from from 2 Maccabees 7 uh, of a mother and seven sons uh, who are all tortured one after another after another and put to death uh, rather than transgress the, the law of the Lord. And they explicitly state uh, that the God who gave them these hands and tongues and faces and everything else in, in this life uh, can do it again in the next life. If you want an interesting read, it's kind of gory, uh, but it's really fascinating. It's it's Second Maccabees uh, seven. Uh, that's what this is uh, is referencing, incidentally. So if everybody else in here is a reference to scripture, and 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 Hebrews decides to also reference that story, that tells you something about that story that it belongs in the canon of scripture. But that's not what I'm actually reading this about. So we have this hall of fame of all of the um, all of the people who've come and lived in faith and died. Uh, and then Hebrews 12, and again, these chapter marks were, were not native to the text, right? This just would have been the next verse after all of this. Uh, and it says this, therefore, uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But here's the word right there, right? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And what do witnesses do? They witness. Here's another verse uh, where we see the dead being aware, because when Jesus dies, what does he do? Uh, Christ, this is from uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and following. Uh, for Christ also died for this for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism now saves you, incidentally, it goes on to say. So baptism is efficacious. It, it does actually save you. But this is what I wanted to read here. So again, Christ also died that he might uh, bring us to God, being put to death in the in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. In the spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison in Sheol, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Right. So where does he go? He goes to the dead and he preaches to the dead. And if he can preach to them, they can hear. Right. And so then we come all the way back over here. Um, pause for a second. Um, and so we come back to just another um, bit of this here. Uh, Revelation 14. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Um, in fact, somebody else is commenting right now. I'll try not to worry about that right now. Um, 
the dead in Christ who arise first. The dead in Christ are the believers who've already died. These believers now dwell in God's presence. I mean, that actually confirms what I'm saying. They are alive and they are aware in some real capacity. They will one day receive a glorious new body if they're not yet resurrected. Sure. I'm on board with that. One day receive glorious new body and be reunited with all the believers living today at the moment of his return. The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. And then, so then they quote Ecclesiastes. She quotes Ecclesiastes, right? Um, and Ecclesiastes, this is one of those times where if you're not careful, uh, you wind up um, not appreciating the the different types of literature that are in the scriptures for what they are, right? Uh, so the book of Ecclesiastes is in, in many accounts, it's a very, it's a very negative piece. It's a very, um, a very depressing piece of literature. But for that reason, a lot of people actually love it. Um, it, it does feel very real and it does kind of feel like it wallows, right? But there's lots of quotes in, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, you know, the living know that they will die. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward. The memory of them is lost. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. But we have clear evidence that I've already gone over that that's not actually true. Now, that doesn't mean that here's a contradiction in the Bible and now the Bible has been proven false. It just means that you have to appreciate what the book of Ecclesiastes is and is not trying to be. Uh, it is uh, it is a lamentation. Uh, it is phrased up until the very last verses um, from the perspective of one who is merely immortal in a in a, a finite mortal life doomed to die. Right. Um, hence, it says things like for for the fate of the sons of men. Oh, shoot, I just lost it. Uh, the fate of the sons of men uh, and the fate of the beast is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. As, as it starts, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to the dust again. It's a very Linton uh, observation, right? Um, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is man gained by toil under the sun, etc. Right. So it's very, it's a very negative, uh, uh, very negative book in a lot of ways. Um, but that's not uh, necessarily against the Book of Ecclesiastes. It's just it is what it is. It's it's a genre of literature, and it's written the way that it's written for a reason. Um, and so we see that that quoting Ecclesiastes. Uh, as a way of proving that the dead know nothing doesn't really mean what you think it means. Uh, like literally that's not the purpose of what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. Um, now Jenny right here, uh, I will point out, she's one of the other ladies I was having a conversation with. She says, um, you know, you can ask us saints who are alive on this earth to pray for God. Um, but we cannot ask those who pass from this life to the next. Now that's, again, that's making an assumption that's simply not true because we see scriptural reference for this in lots of different places that I've just gone over. They present the prayers of the saints on earth. As she herself points out, the saints generally are us who are alive on earth. Uh, they present the, the, the prayers of the saints to God as incense. Um, I don't want to turn this into a whole discussion about what she has here. Uh, only God hears our prayers. And if you are rebellious, you won't listen to Jesus uh, who said, when you pray, then say our father, otherwise you are rebellious and a necromancer. So again, um, this is just not the case. A necromancer is one who seeks to call up the dead and have a conversation with them. Right. And that's not at all what we do. We are simply saying what I would say to anybody, what I'd say to Jenny, what I'd say to Lydia or anybody else. I'd say, listen, I'm a Catholic. Um, I'm very upfront about that, obviously. Um, but I do want to know the truth. And so I would ask for you to pray for me. And, and if it's not a violation to ask you to pray for me, even though God knows what we need, God is omnipotent. So he's all powerful. He's omniscient. He's all knowing he's outside of time. 
he's all good. He, 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 he knows what we need even before we ask. Given those premises, it actually makes no sense in the sense that we should ever pray at all, right? Why pray at all if God already knows what it is that we need? Why, why ask at all? Let alone, why ask you to pray for me if I can go directly to God, right? Uh, literally the same argument that they try to use against the saints uh, shoots down asking anyone else to pray for you. And yet we have a biblical model for all of this stuff, right? We have a biblical model for prayer um, for each other, for prayer for our leaders, um, and even secular leaders, right? We have biblical models um, for prayers for those who have gone before us. Paul prays for his friend Onesiphorus, uh, who seems to have died. Um, we see the the prayers for, for the dead or prayers uh, to the dead, right? The, which is to say, and again, the word prayer doesn't mean worship. And I think that's one of the big issues that people often have uh, when they come to this is, is in, a, in a Protestant setting, Protestant mentality, the word prayer just means prayer and worship are synonymous, right? Um, but the word pray means ask, uh, pray, tell me, <laughs> you know, I ask you, um, uh, pray, tell me, did you think that the word pray always means worship? It doesn't. So again, this comes back to what we started with. A lot of times words have lots of different meanings and you have to be precise in the meanings of the words that you're using because it's not always as clear cut as what you're wanting to say. So, uh, when a Hebrew word is being used, um, like, uh, was it Daresh or whatever it was up here? Um, yeah, Darash. Um, that's not meaning that everything here is always included every time that word is used. That's just not how languages work, let alone, you know, biblical Hebrew. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and end this video here. I hope that I've uh, at least given you some information to, to go on and, and, and some thoughts that you want, uh, particularly for Lydia and also for Jenny, but anybody else who's watching this here on this channel. Obviously, if you found this helpful, feel free to leave it a like. If you have any questions, feel free to put a comment down below. Um, also, feel free to subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. I'm always happy to see new people join this channel. Uh, it is a, a, a young fledgling channel, but one of these days, maybe it'll be something a lot more than this. Um, that being said, I wish you the best. God bless you and uh, pray for me. Bye-bye.